innovation has to fit the problem set and the resource set of the organization you're looking at. And one of the things I advise people to do is look at their own strengths and weaknesses. Look at your balance sheet. Look at where, where, is, where is movement from the marketplace coming? What are people interested in that you are already doing? And how can you innovate there? Because I think that's the kind of innovation that is comes right out of the organism itself, the organizational organism itself. You have the talent, you have the ideas. How can you innovate in that space? Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of An Ingenious You, the podcast where we speak with higher ed's most creative thinkers and doers. Today, I'm speaking with someone who I have watched lead for a very long time and with great admiration. Helen Joinen is somewhat of a leadership legend in the greater Boston area. She held a variety of senior level human resource positions in banking and healthcare before assuming the presidency of Simmons University. During her 12-year tenure at Simmons, the institution was transformed on just about every level, resulting in a significant strengthening of the school's financial stability. She was appointed President Emerita of Simmons upon her retirement in 2020, and has recently taken on a new challenge as interim president of Cabrini University in the greater Philadelphia area. We will include a link to her full bio in the show notes. But for now, Helen, it is such an honor to welcome you to the Ingenious You community. Thank you, Melissa. It's a great thing to be here. Well, we'd like to start by finding out something uh, about you. We always like to start by uh, finding out something about our guests. You have had such a rich and multifaceted professional and personal journey. I was interested in reading your Twitter bio in which you describe yourself as transformational leader in higher ed, champion of girls and women, avid reader, wife, mom, grandmother, and cancer survivor. So as you think back across your life's journey, how did these dots connect? What influences have most shaped who you are today and the things that you have accomplished? And are there any stories that you'd like to share? Uh, that's a great question. <clears throat> you know, I think, uh, Melissa, that um, when we all review our lives and try to make sense of the differences and the connections and the changes, there are some things that really do stand out. And I, I think um, as a little girl, I remember very clearly uh, my mom and dad working very hard, very hard to keep uh, my sister and my lives going along. And I, I can remember flashes of seeing them at the dining room table, working out how they were gonna pay their bills my mom had two jobs at a time. My dad had three jobs at a time. And I didn't realize it really until I went to Mount Holyoke that we really were uh, a family that was living paycheck to paycheck. And uh, so when I hear that phrase today, I'm pretty clear about what that means. Now, I don't think we were ever, ever, ever as close to the kind of difficulties as that as that suggests today. But I do remember always thinking you have to work really hard. You have to really stick at it. You can't give up when the going gets tough. 
because those were the models I had as a child. And I think that's one of the things that has connected many of the dots in my life. Uh, and I, you know, I, I also have very strong memories of um, a high school experience with a very large public high school. We had 740 kids in our class. Uh, I was the editor of the yearbook, so I actually know the exact number <laughs> of kids in the class because we had to get all their pictures and their bios in. Um, and I look back now and the town in which I grew up was very much like I just described my family. So I grew up in a, in a culture of hard work, a culture of optimism. I, I have to say the hard work was directed at a better life. Um, and, and I see many of my high school friends that I have stayed in touch with having lived very full lives like mine. And so <clears throat> I think um, it was a simpler time, Melissa. And there are times when I really yearn for that level of simplicity for today's kids, because I think it was, it was um, easier to make choices. The um, competition for your attention was far less complicated. And it was easy to kind of, well, maybe it wasn't easy for everybody, but I felt like it was easy for most of us to see where we were trying to go and stick on a path. Yeah, indeed. You know, I was the high school yearbook editor as well. <laughs> and I often look back on that experience as something that taught me a lot yes. about what you need for leadership. It's, it's a great, great experience. It is so, a great experience. It is. Yeah. Now, you are widely credited with bringing stability to Simmons University during your 10 or your 12 year tenure. I know you were on the board of Simmons before becoming president. And the the strengthening that you oversaw was no easy feat, uh, considering the experience of other women's colleges yes. during this same period. So as you reflect on your Simmons presidency, what do you consider your most significant achievements and, and why? Well, I think there were two principal achievements. The first one was creating financial stability. I, you know, I've just come to realize, and I, I, I knew this long before I was at Simmons, that without financial stability, uh, everything else is fragile. And, uh, you know, um, there's a quotation from years ago, um, often attributed to different people, uh, but it's no, no margin, no mission. And it is a truism that is applicable uh, throughout so many different kinds of organizations today, um, people don't like that fact. You know, they'd rather say, well, we're doing something very noble. Why do we have to talk about money? We're doing something that is life-saving. Why do we have to talk about money? I mean, I've heard this in healthcare. I've heard this in education. I've heard this in every aspect of my life, um, other than the for-profit organizations who understood very clearly <laughs> why financial stability uh, was was directly related to everything else you wanted to do. So I really think that my experience in the for-profit world made it easy for me to see what had to be done. It didn't make it easy to actually do it. But I think that figuring out what needed to be done at that moment in time when I, came, when I arrived at Simmons was really life or death for Simmons. And I, I do think that even people who don't like to talk about money realized in that moment that 
we're going to have to do some things that maybe uh, if, if times felt more flush, we, we would choose not to do. But the reality is that you have to do these things all the time, not, ju not just when you have a burning platform. Sometimes I think, you know, during the um, Great Recession and again during the pandemic, people use the expression a lot, never waste a good crisis. Well, do we have to wait for crisis to get our financial house in order? I think not. And so what I tried to do at Simmons was not only establish financial stability to get us out of the rocky, rocky, rocky place we were in, but to also set a course moving forward so that we could attend to other things that financial stability allows you to attend to and create a path towards long-term sustainability. Now, you referenced uh, other women's colleges and there've been many which have closed. We know that uh, even during the time that Simmons was uh, on its journey to a longer term st stability. But, but I will make this comment, Melissa, any school, women's college, co-ed college, that is tuition dependent, modestly endowed, and uh, the third part is the degree to which it has debt, the less the better, obviously. But if you have those three things as defining characteristics, road to stability, sustainability, excuse me, road to sustainability is a journey, very much a journey. It doesn't end with one president. It has to be sustained presidency after presidency after presidency until those three criteria do not apply. And that is very long-term. Tuition dependency and modestly endowed really tie together because if, if you are modestly endowed, that means you do, do not have the opportunity to provide the kinds of financial resources for scholarships that really get you away from that tuition dependency. So those two are very tightly aligned. And so what that means is over that very long term, you have to really be working on building endowment, living with tuition dependency, but building endowment and hopefully either paying down or not getting new debt. That's not something one presidency, one presidency is going to correct. It has to be then something that is sustained subsequent, by subsequent presidents. So I feel like I brought financial stability to Simmons and a path towards sustainability, but I could not guarantee that forever. Now, the second thing that I think was absolutely critical, absolutely critical was strategic differentiation. Simmons looked so like every other small liberal arts-based school. It did have a predilection for professional preparation, but over the years that had gotten somewhat muddled. It wasn't as clear cut as it had been, let's say, a generation or two before. So we really were not strategically differentiated. We offered a lot of the same things at the undergraduate level that everybody else did. Where we did have a particular opportunity was that we had graduate programs that had been in place for some time and had earned their own very strong reputations, wholly separate and apart from the undergraduate college. And we were in fields that are, you know, are not all that popular in Boston. So for example, nursing. Now there are more nursing programs in Boston today than there were at the time that Simmons started with nursing, but librarianship. There is no other library and information science program that is nationally ranked, even in New England. Um, social work, we had a very strong social work program. So we had these wonderful programs. 
they couldn't differentiate us, however, because they were really landlocked in, in uh, our student population in New England. So the strategic dilemma was, where can we differentiate ourselves? How can we differentiate ourselves? And we um, really worked hard with an outside firm called Art and Science, and they helped us to really see how we could differentiate the undergraduate program. Now, our own efforts, separate and apart for art and science, our own efforts were towards what can we do with these graduate programs that are so strong, but not growing. And uh, that's a story unto itself, where we partnered with an organization called To You Incorporated, which was in its, its infancy stages, just as we were in our infancy stages of experimenting with online graduate education. And so between working on the undergraduate program to differentiate that and launching as an early adopter online graduate education in fields we were known as experts, that combination was incredibly powerful for Simmons. So I'd say, you know, two things, financial stability with a forward-looking plan for sustainability and strategic differentiation. Those were critical. Yeah, boy, there's so much wisdom in what you've just in what you've just shared. You know, I was struck by the importance of the long-term view. Yep. Uh, which is not something a lot of colleges and universities. I mean, it, I hear so much these days about quick fixes, looking yes. for quick fixes, right. right? As opposed to really understanding this is a journey. Yes. Um, the other thing that strikes me is, boy, you hit the timing just right. Oh, did we? Uh, in terms of. <laughs> <laughs> the expansion of the of your yeah the early adopter so you know that question of where are those early adoption opportunities these days for institutions so we'll come back to that when we talk I, a little I, bit more about I will say ahead. about that though Melissa I, I don't mean to interrupt you but let me say that um when we did that um it was not as easy as it may sound in hindsight because the advantage of being an early adopter was huge and I'm, I'm not even sure we appreciated how huge that was in the moment. What we were very appreciative of was the resistance yeah. to a university like Simmons, which prided itself on being well-respected, being compared to the University of Phoenix. Now, yeah. I have no issue with the University of Phoenix. I think it's doing great work for a lot of populations. But traditional higher ed and non-traditional higher ed, not a good mix in 2012, 13, and 14. And I will tell you, when edX was announced by Harvard-MIT, that changed the landscape dramatically because all of a sudden, two mighty institutions were saying, this stuff means something. We're not exactly sure what, but we're going to invest some money in figuring it out. All of a sudden, the floodgates opened. So yeah. while it was a difficult time and a difficult undertaking, <clears throat> we did take advantage of early adopter status and things worked out. Well, and that's a great segue to my next question because I wanted to ask you about how you have dealt with the most challenging aspects of criticism. So, and, and difficult decision-making. So yeah. you brought forward, you and your uh, administration, a proposal for something that was not uh, widely embraced at right. the outset. So um, how, how did you deal with that? And then what lessons uh, from your own experience might be of value to others, including 
women leaders mm-hmm. who are in the trenches and also trying to implement difficult decisions. Yeah. So let me say that um, I think when you're trying to do something that is novel, and we can say innovative, we can say new, I mean, it's sort of on a a spectrum or a a continuum, I guess. When you're trying to do something that's new, I think you have to think about how can you gain acceptance for that? And yet, you know, time is of the essence often in these situations. I'll refer back to your earlier comment about quick fixes. I think the reason people are looking for quick fixes is that they feel the pressure of, we don't have a lot of time. So I would say in that moment, we try, I very much felt we needed to try this on our own. We needed to try, what is it like to try to launch an online graduate education program? And so we did try that. And boy, did that show all the warts. We put together an internal team to do this. And if you could create a sort of personification of resistance, we had every kind of resistance at that table. We can't do this, we're too busy. We can't do this, we don't have the right people. We can't do this, we don't have the right technology. The number of reasons why we couldn't do this were just legion. And as I had one or two colleagues that kept pushing saying, "But, but this is critical for us to try. Long story short, we did launch a program, resistance notwithstanding. And people were actually proud that we actually accomplished that, all the resistance in the background still. The problem was it didn't have all the right ingredients. They were right. We didn't have the right people. We didn't have the right technology. And we launched a great program, but it never grew larger than 35 students. And, uh, you know, I know now, like the back of my hand, uh, scale is critical in this work. And so we had to close down the program. And I thought, that was the end of that. And I thought, you know, I don't know what to do with this because I'm convinced that this strategy is critical for Simmons. When we had a visit from our friends at 2U and our IT head had been working with them, trying to convince them to come and talk to us. So it wasn't like uh, a miracle happened or money fell out of the sky. We had actual institutional efforts going on in that direction. And I won't go through the details of this, but when they walked in the door, they wanted to do nursing and that hit the exact right note because nursing faculty tend to be different than most faculty. They're very pragmatic. They, our faculty always worked one day a week actually in the clinical setting and they foresaw an opportunity to do two things, spread the quality of the Simmons education and address the nursing shortage in the United States. So all of a sudden we've got the right ingredients. On the one hand, we've got somebody who's got the things that we didn't have before in terms of resources and we have a faculty ready to go and it went. And so my lesson from that was, if you can have, when you have resistance, if you can have a group of people that get what you're trying to accomplish and help them be successful, that's probably the avenue to broadening additional participation. And it, that's how it worked. When other faculty saw what was happening with the nursing faculty, the nursing faculty encouraged the social work faculty to give it a shot, encouraged the, and the uh, behavior analysis faculty to give it a shot. And that's how we grew. So I would say uh, when you're facing this kind of resistance, try to start small, try to start with some colleagues that are on, in your corner 
And if you can have a success, let them be the ones who advertise the change rather than you as the leader advertising the change. Because I think people resist the idea that some mandate from the top is what's gonna solve the future. I think they yeah. resist that. Yeah, boy, that's really wise. You know, on a personal level, and I'm I'm listening to you, I'm and I'm reminded I interviewed Pat McGuire, uh, mm -hmm. the long-serving president at Absolutely. Trinity Washington yep. uh, a while ago. And uh, and I asked her about this, and she said, you know, it took me a while because she was 36 when she became president there. I mean, she was a young, young. first-time yep. president. And she said, and and she speaks about this on the podcast, so I can I can share this, but she she said, you know, there was a lot of criticism from the faculty at first. And I finally had to realize that there's always going to be noise. There's yes. always going to be some noise outside the door. And I just had to realize that was part of leadership. So right. on a personal level, you know, it, I would imagine that's something you had to come to terms with a long time ago, given how yes. long you've been in leadership as well. Yeah. Well, you know, sometimes I think it, it, it it may be something you can um, foresee. I, I think I did not foresee the need to develop a kind of uh, steely interior. Um, and, and, I, and I have to say, I feel like that's what I have done over the course of my leadership challenges. So what do I mean by a steely interior? I mean, believe me, I don't mean insensitive to what's going on around me. I mean, developing the ability to um, let criticism uh, not go away, but not get through that steely interior, not go straight to my heart. Because if every day I had to reconsider everything I was doing in the context of, am I doing the right thing? Do I have too much opposition, sufficient support? I don't think you can get through a leadership assignment that way. It, it's too rapid fire, but you do have to have some mechanism for not letting every criticism become a crisis of faith in yourself because it would happen constantly. Um, and I, you know, I identify with, uh, with leaders. When I see leaders in other situations, I identify with them in the sense that I think to myself, how are they taking care of their own ability to make your way through this because um, you know there's a uh, there's a very significant amount of loneliness in in leadership positions. I really believe that. And some of that has to do with the fact that there are some things you can discuss with virtually no one. Um, you try to find someone in the world or a couple of someones in the world whom you trust absolutely. But not always do those people have the ability to actually give you the kind of counsel that you need. But you have to find some way, I think, to, um, to realize that um, that loneliness is a reality of the job and that you can diffuse it in a certain number of ways, but it really goes with the territory. I have lost friends over leadership decisions I've made. And I've realized that there was nothing I could do about that because my job required me to do something they didn't like. And as a result, they decided the friendship was no long, longer worth their investing in. And that's a high price to pay, I would say, Melissa. But I do think, you know, it goes with the territory. You just don't realize certain things go with the territory.
These are difficult days for higher education. Even before the pandemic, higher education was in a free fall. Colleges are closing and merging at an ever-increasing rate. Leaders are facing challenges from every direction. No wonder so many experts are calling for a new kind of leadership. The Bay Path University Doctorate in Educational Leadership with a concentration in higher ed leadership and organizational studies, affectionately known as HELOS, was created for just this time and purpose. We asked seasoned leaders for their input and then we designed program in response. The EDD program prepares students to become self-aware, effective, adaptive leaders who know exactly how to leverage their institution's strengths and potential to create lasting change and enduring success. All coursework is online and students receive an abundance of personalized support from peers and from our expert faculty. And through the dissertation and practice, our students learn how to plan and implement a change process to address a real organizational problem. If you want to become a catalyst for change in higher education and have an impact, take the next step by visiting our website at baypath.edu edd. Let me switch gears here. Um, there, there is a lot of talk as you know, these days about the need for innovation. Everybody's talking about innovation these days, yep. new ways of thinking about higher education. And one of the pillars of your leadership journey is an obvious ability to successfully innovate and to lead innovation. So mm -hmm. can you speak a little bit more to the challenges and maybe some of the surprises and lessons you've learned about innovation? Well, the first thing I, I would say about innovation is that I think people have a knee-jerk thought that that means creating the iPhone or launching a rocket. I mean, something sort of so big that, um, that it deserves the title innovation. When in fact, I think really what you're talking about in when you talk about innovation is, is, uh, is courageous problem solving. Really, really saying, okay, we have a, a significant problem. At Simmons, our problem was that we, we didn't have enough resources to run the university the way we were in a position to tell others would benefit them in their education. So we had to solve that problem. And what we needed to do was generate a better product and generate more money to support that better product. Well, that is not exactly launching a rocket to Mars or, you know, or, or creating the iPhone, but it is within the purview of the kind of problem solving we have to do in higher education. And so the innovation came from saying, okay, what could we be doing that is not being done right now that maybe even people are saying that'll never work, but, uh, but we could pursue it. And would we have the courage to, to try to pursue that and then stick with it? And as I said, we tried, it failed. We tried again, it succeeded. But we were really looking for um, successes in the realm of what we were already doing. And, you know, Melissa, it was interesting after we were pretty successful with this. And after, I mean, I believe that that kind of success draws attention to a university like Simmons, very small institution in Boston, but boom, all of a sudden we're getting lots of attention. And, and people would ask me, well, is this replicable in my institution? And, and I, I realized, I learned as I got that question over and over again, theoretically, yes, it's replicable. 
but the conditions have to be right in your institution. So for example, one of the absolutely defining benefits that Simmons had was that our graduate programs were well-established. They'd been in the market for a long time. So they had on their own excellent reputations. A school that says, well, we're gonna create a nursing program, a library school program, and a social work program. That takes years to actually create new graduate education and establish credibility. That's not something you do in two or three years. So yes, theoretically, you could replicate what Simmons did, but I'm gonna tell you right off the bat, if you don't already have one or two or three really strong graduate programs, you're gonna to have to start at the beginning and it's gonna be a slow process. So no, you won't see your revenue grow from $4 million to $80 million in five years. That will not happen. So, uh, you know, it's really um, interesting, I think, to think innovation has to fit the problem set and the resource set of the organization you're looking at. And one of the things I advise people to do is look at their own strengths and weaknesses. Look at your balance sheet. Look at where, where is where is movement from the marketplace coming? What are people interested in that you are already doing? And how can you innovate there? Because I think that's the kind of innovation that is comes right out of the organism itself, the organizational organism itself. You have the talent, you have the ideas. How can you innovate in that space? Is there anything else you would add to that? Because I think that is such a critical attribute for somebody who wants to be successful in innovating is to find those opportunities. So looking close as a starting point in terms of your own strengths and the things that are already drawing um, interest and revenue, but are there any other um, questions that leaders should be asking to surface good ideas? Well, I think another way to innovate, and we did do this at Simmons, is to say, is there something that we have tried and um, we think we're good at, but it's not working? So um, Simmons, you know, uh, was really the only university in the United States that actually created uh, an MBA program designed for women. And it was launched in the 70s when women were, in many cases, not permitted to apply to business schools, the big business schools. I think Harvard had just admitted women like two years earlier. So early 70s, women are nowhere in terms of MBA education. And, um, and so we had two professors at Simmons. Now that was a true innovation. They really took the problem solving of the current moment and turned it into a great program. But here's the thing, um, that innovation had a, uh, a big competitor, which was the growing uh, movement of women into the world of business. And all of a sudden, by the 1990s, so within 20 years of that innovation, all these big, big schools are now giving big scholarships because women aren't applying in the same numbers to business school, even though they're more interested than they ever were. They're not anywhere near a 50-50 split as with other professional schools, such as medical school and law school. I read something yesterday that said that even in spite of the decline in MBA applications in the United States, for the first time, women are applying at parity with men. Think about what that did to that innovation. All of a sudden, this tiny little school is competing with all the big schools, very deep pockets, and they're giving scholarships 
that wiped us out financially. We could no longer compete with that innovation. So what do you do with that innovation? Now that it's really hitting a, um, it's hitting a rough, 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 rough spot. And so we really, we spent some serious time looking at how could we take that expertise that we had created for ourselves, the reputation we had in women's leadership. And we evolved it to something called the Simmons University Institute for Inclusive Leadership. And the way we did that was we married our expertise to the Simmons Conference, which had, which had developed, it was, it, it, this year will be, I believe it's 44th year of continuous operation. It started as almost like a, 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 an alumni get together to talk about their experiences now that they were in the business world. And 44 years later, we're bringing in, you know, uh, people like former uh, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and Michelle Obama. And, uh, you know, it's just a big deal. So we married the expertise of the universe of the MBA program to the conference and launched the Simmons Institute for, uh, for uh, Inclusive Leadership. And that now is a freestanding institute, which has the wonderful attribute of being able to accept non-tuition dollars. That is dollars that are coming from students who are sponsored by corporations or students who are paying for themselves non-tuition dollars. And I think in higher education, innovation to diversify revenue beyond tuition is one of the most important innovation streams we can possibly look at. One of the other things I hear from leaders who are in the, the midst of implementing something new has to do with the culture. And, uh, you know, as Peter Drucker so famously talked about, the culture is what will get you uh, yep. if you don't if you don't pay attention to it uh -huh. and, and I think manage his, it. I think so, his specific quote was culture will eat strategy for breakfast anytime. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. So what do you think about that? You know, from your experience, what have you learned about uh, how to how to work with the culture when you're trying to to innovate and uh, develop? Uh, a culture, a culture of innovation, which you obviously have done. Yeah, I will say I have great respect for the development and sustenance of culture, Melissa. It is a powerful, powerful thing. And so um, I would say that um, if I think about, let's just think about for a minute, the innovation of graduate higher education. Uh, I was extremely respectful of the fact that the graduate faculty was um, largely on board, not 100% on board, but largely on board. The undergraduate faculty made it eminently clear they wanted nothing to do with online education, period, end of sentence. So I just didn't bother them with it. Now, periodically, I would give the community a report on what we were doing in graduate online education. And I will tell you that as the revenue line began to increase in the way that it did, it was a spectacular increase. People started paying more attention even at the undergraduate level. They weren't ready to sign on by any means, but they were paying more attention. And one day, the person who was then head of faculty senate said to me, I think the rest of the faculty at the undergraduate level needs to understand what this is doing for Simmons because uh, it's hugely strengthening our annual revenues and our budget and it's affording us the opportunity to do things that otherwise we couldn't do. 
Well, that was a powerful moment for me because I thought, okay, this is a sort of a, um, this is the slow way of changing a college lawyer by trying to influence over time what they think about something that they're very resistant to. And then within two years, the pandemic was upon us. And all of a sudden, we had that spring experience of trying to teach, and I won't even call it online, I will call it distance learning, because you know, it included everything from let's use the telephone to, you know, let's maybe have a few little meetings that the professor can handle via Zoom. Um, and all of a sudden they realized, the undergraduate faculty, that the fact that we had this expertise at the graduate level might come in pretty handy. And we were able within a two month period to conceive of and get both full faculty approval and full board approval for putting the undergraduate program online in order to support our students during the pandemic. So it was a slow, slow process and it took a lot of patience, but I think it paid off. And I also think that if there had been a sooner emergency, they probably would have reacted that way. But by the time we got to this emergency, the, the, the seeds had been sown. So it wasn't, you know, the, the culture was slowly moving in a way of being more accepting. Now, one of the things that I think a lot about this is, you know, uh, I'm in a place right now where the culture needs to change, but it has far less time. The, the reality of time uh, countering the difficulty of changing a culture is a real dilemma. It's a real dilemma. And I think it's going on in a lot of higher education today. Well, it, it's, is it fair to say at Simmons, you really started from within with those who were most, most likely to uh, jump on board? Um, yes, I think and that's fair. built outward and built outward from there. I which... think that's fair to say. I think that's very fair to say. I mean, it, it does in fact, um, it does in fact uh, mean that you risk um, the external support of alumni. And that was a real risk at that time. We had a lot of alumni who were very worried about the institutional reputation, but the key change was from within, there's no doubt. Yeah, which, you know, although, as you said, you had the luxury, more of the luxury of time than a lot of institutions now do. And that actually gives me a segue to um, another question I yeah. wanted to ask you, which, you know, given your remarkable career, you have certainly earned the right to just step back <laughs> and focus on your personal life and pursuits. I know you're an avid reader, so I don't know how much time you have these days to read. But yet here you are, you've stepped into uh, the interim presidency of a university that like a lot of schools has its challenges. Yep. Um, so why did you want to do this? Why did you want the role? And what did you hope to accomplish? And maybe you can tell us a little bit. I mean, anybody who watches and reads the news knows that there's a lot of change happening yes. at Cabrini right now. Yeah. So, uh, so I would say, um, you know, when I stepped down at Simmons, <clears throat> I definitely knew that I wanted to do something, but I wasn't unhappy that I wasn't going to do something in the midst of the pandemic. I mean, it was the, it was very fortuitous for me that I had made the decision to retire 
just as the pandemic was becoming a very large challenge because <clears throat> it was not particularly a challenge that interested me. And I, I really stayed in touch with the higher education um, reaction to the pandemic as well as this you know, countrywide, nationwide, worldwide reaction to the pandemic. I, I wasn't like closing my eyes to that. But I was grateful I was not the one solving the problems about whether we had to wear masks or not and whether we had to have uh, classes you know, remote or not, because that was a lot of very hard work. But during that time, I really was trying to evaluate what would I like to do? And um, I had taken a pass at an interim presidency just before I stepped down and decided it's too soon, premature, I'm not ready to do that. And at about the year mark of my, um, my having stepped down from Simmons, I got a call to do a small consulting pro project with a couple of universities that were trying, in, uh, trying to innovate in response to the problem we're talking about, the large problem we're talking about, about po the possible consolidation of colleges in this country. All the small colleges are realizing, we're probably not all gonna be here 10, 15, 20 years from now. And so what can we do to uh, avoid that fate? So these two universities were looking at that and they wanted some consulting on things like graduate uh, online education and how do you do that? And this, I was a perfect fit for what they needed. And so we, I, I took the assignment, it was a remote assignment. So I worked from home and I was just sort of getting back into the thinking about all these problems. And along came the assignment for Cabrini. And I felt like, you know what, if I hadn't done this little bridge, maybe I wouldn't be ready to take something like this on. But what so impressed me was these folks are dealing with the same problem I was dealing with at Simmons in 2008 to 2012, but they have lost the advantage of time. And now the, you know, the tsunami is coming right to the shore and I'm getting very interested in thinking, can I bring some of the skills that I had developed at Simmons to these institutions? And I do think I did help a lot with the ones that I worked with in the spring. And then I, I was encouraged in my interview here to think I have a lot to contribute it, to this place. This is a wonderful place. Most of the small colleges in this country are wonderful places founded by people who had great ideas to afford education as the really best opportunity we have for upward mobility in this country. So most of them are very mission centric. They're very concerned about sustaining their mission and about doing so under increasingly difficult financial circumstances. And all of that appealed to me. So here I am. <laughs> you just launched uh, this uh, change effort. Yeah. And uh, so is there anything you can say about it in terms sure. of how it's going and sure, yeah, go ahead. So um, I think this university is representative of many, many, many other universities that we've talked about before with the same characteristics. And I think many of us are trying to solve the same problems. And what is the basic problem? The basic problem is it costs a lot of money to run a small residential liberal arts-based program. How are we going to solve that problem? And do we have to solve that problem by ourselves or can we do it in partnership with others? So we're following two paths. One is how do we maximize the likelihood that we can remain independent for as long as we might choose to? And how do we begin the process of looking at partners who might 
collaborate with us at some juncture on that path, maybe sooner, maybe later. But I think that in order to be appealing to partners, you need to do the same things that you need to do to carve that independent path. So uh, it's by no means a, a wasted effort to be trying to position yourself for a long-term path if indeed you're thinking that over the long pull partnerships are what we need. But I, I believe it's a combination. I'm increasingly believing that whatever the strength of an institution, even an institution that has significant strength over the course of time, are we gonna have 4,000 institutions in this country? Are we? Do we need that? Is that the best way to address questions of access, questions of cost? Can we find innovative ways to scale uh, access to our institutions so that the cost can be reduced? I am an admirer of Michael Crow at Arizona State University because I think he's really trying to think what are the needs of the nation and how does higher education meet those needs? And I feel like this is an opportunity for me to think in those terms more and more. So I've really enjoyed this opportunity, Melissa. Yeah, it's tapping into your design thinking capabilities, which yep. Michael Crow talks about that. I interviewed him last year. And I'm one of the things he that he talked about, yep. yeah, one of the things he talked about is his belief that college and university presidents need to think like design thinkers. Yes. Um, which yep. is a whole different kind of skill set, but that's really what you're you're talking about here. So well, there, was a, there was an article, I think it was a week or so in, ago in the Globe addressing the fact that several Boston institutions were all recruiting new presidents and it was entitled, colleges need leaders, but college leaders need to be innovators. And so I think yeah. we're all starting to think, you know, this role, this leadership role is more than, you know, the long-term academic with great respect for what they have accomplished sitting in a big office while occasionally going out and asking for big gifts. It's really a roll your sleeves up, get into the actual work of the organization and start to uh, push the buttons around what do we need to be to be contributors in the long term. Yeah, in, indeed. So we just have a few minutes left here. And that's actually one of the final questions I wanted to ask you. Okay. Um, because as, as you have just pointed out, there's a lot being written these days about what the presidents of today and the future are going to need. Uh, and I've, I've seen language around a new, a new leader for a new era, um, a new mindset, a new skill set. Um, could you break that down a little bit further in terms of what are the, what is the mindset, what's the skill set that college university leaders need now in order to be successful for their institutions? Well, I'm gonna um, respond to that question, Melissa, with a combination of traditionalism and different thinking. Uh, I, I am utterly respectful of the magnificent accomplishments of small and large colleges in this country relative to generating knowledge, uh, setting a standard for intellectual conversation, interaction, creation of inspiration for lifelong learning. I do not want to see those traditional aspects of the academy go away in any way, shape or form. I do wonder whether one person needs to personify that 
at the top of the organization, because I think actually that the large academic undertaking of an organization is a very important, very critical thing for people with the right skill set. That is strong training in discipline, strong training in pedagogy, strong training in research, strong training in interacting with students. We want all of that to stay. Running an organization that is the business side of that endeavor is harder and harder to do today. So the likelihood that the person who has the skill set I just described also can step to the other side of the room and start talking about all the business issues. I, I think that's unrealistic in this day and age. And as we consolidate, which I truly believe the industry will consolidate, it's gonna be very important that that academic side stay as absolutely rich as it can, but it's gonna get harder and harder and harder to run these organizations with demands of lowering the costs, increasing the access, and making sure the quality of the product stays as high as it possibly can. So I just think that uh, the person who uh, leads the organization must have the utmost respect for the organizing principle of that organization, which is the education of our students. But they must also be able to look forward to the strategic opportunities and barriers that face the institution and pull together all the pieces you know, I think the president is responsible for all the resources of the organization. That's the intellectual capabilities, the community relationships, the faculty, the staff, the reputation, all of those things accrue to the president. Can you do all of those things well and also be the inspiration for the academic undertaking? I just don't think it's going to be humanly possible to put all those things in one person. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree. And, you know, we're seeing new models emerge, aren't we, of uh, dual presidencies, and, yeah. um, which is kind of an interesting thing to, to consider. Um, so, well, well, I think you know, if, oh, I, if I use my own experience as a model, I would say I could never do this job without a tremendous leader on the academic side. Could never do this job. And I know that because while I, I respect and admire I do not have that content expertise. And so I do have other content expertise that in my experience, those people don't typically have. And so I think, you know, whether you lead with one and you have a chief operating officer as the other, or whether you lead with my kind of skill set and you have a senior academic officer, one way or the other, right? you know, in, in many ways we think about how is the presidency of the United States still doable by one person? And we've never, ever been able to address that as a country. I think that's emerging as an issue in higher education. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. So yeah. Helen, this has been such a fabulous conversation. I, you, have, I really enjoyed this. So I have one final question. Yep. It's our signature question. Okay. And that is, is there an innovation or some new idea in higher education that has captured your attention that you're particularly excited about right now? Uh, yes, there is. Um, I believe that students are the key to understanding how we meet the challenges of higher education in the future. And I believe we have so underestimated and undervalued that voice that I think we need to find a way 
to ensure that the student voice is really in the forefront. And I love the work that is being done by places like Gallup to really advance our understanding, sophisticated understanding of how to hear the student. I'm not talking about anecdotes in the classroom. I'm not talking about mini surveys. I'm talking about really studying what our students have to tell us about their current experience and what will maximize the value of that experience so that we're operating on real information, not what we think projections of the future should be in our mind, but informed by the true voice of the student. And I just don't think we're doing enough of that, Melissa. Yeah, well, thank you for that, that final word. And I know that there are many, many people who, who uh, will agree agree with that. So <laughs> I wish you all the best thank in you. your your year ahead. And I'm so glad that you are speaking and continuing to contribute your, your rich and deep wisdom um, to all of higher education. Thank you, Melissa. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of An Ingenious You. This is Melissa Morris-Olson, your host. We are very excited about our season four conversations. I encourage you to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on a single episode. And if you like what you hear, be sure to rate us and let your friends and colleagues know so that they too can join the Ingenious You community. I invite you to visit our website for the Center for Higher Education, Leadership and Innovative Practice at baypath.edu slash chelip, C-H-E-L-I-P, where you will find information about our monthly free Leading Edge Thinking and Higher Education webinars, as well as our just launched YouTube channel, where you'll find full video interviews with our most highly rated conversations from previous seasons. And while on this site, you can subscribe so you don't miss out on the release of new content and upcoming webinars. That's all for now. Thanks so very much for listening. Thank you.